Lecture 7 of the Varieties of Religious Experience. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Varieties of Religious Experience by W. James. Lecture 7 The Sick Soul. So much for melancholy in the sense of incapacity for joyous feeling. A much worse form of it is positive and active anguish, a sort of physical neuralgia wholly unknown to healthy life such anguish may partake of various characters having sometimes more the quality of loathing sometimes that of irritation and exasperation or again of self-mistrust and self-despair or of suspicion anxiety trepidation fear the patient may rebel or submit may accuse himself or accuse outside powers and he may or he may not be tormented by the theoretical mystery of why he should so have to suffer. Most cases are mixed cases, and we should not treat our classifications with too much respect. Moreover, it is only a relatively small proportion of cases that connect themselves with the religious sphere of experience at all. Exasperated cases, for instance, as a rule, do not. I quote now literally from the first case of melancholy on which I lay my hand. It is a letter from a patient in a French asylum. Quote, I suffer too much in this hospital, both physically and morally. Besides the burnings and the sleeplessness, for I no longer sleep since I am shut up here, and the little rest I get is broken by bad dreams and I am waked with a jump by nightmares, dreadful visions, lightning, thunder, and the rest. Fear, atrocious fear, presses me down, holds me without respite, never lets me go. Where is the justice in it all? What have I done to deserve this excess of severity? Under what form will this fear crush me? What would I not owe to anyone who would rid me of my life? Eat, drink, lie awake all night, suffer without interruption. Such is the fine legacy I have received from my mother. What I fail to understand is this abuse of power. There are limits to everything. There is a middle way. But God knows neither middle way nor limits. I say God, but why? All I have known so far has been the devil. After all, I am afraid of God as much as of the devil, so I drift along, thinking of nothing but suicide, but with neither courage nor means here to execute the act. As you read this, it will easily prove to you my insanity. The style and the ideas are incoherent enough, I can see that myself, but I cannot keep myself from being either crazy or an idiot, and as things are, from whom should I ask pity? I am defenseless against the invisible enemy who is tightening his coils around me. I should be no better armed against him even if I saw him or had seen him. Oh, if he would but kill me, devil take him! Death, death once for all! But I stop. I have raved to you long enough. I say raved, 
for I can write no otherwise, having neither brain nor thoughts left. O oh God, what a misfortune to be born! Born like a mushroom, doubtless between an evening and a morning, and how true and right I was when in our philosophy year in college I chewed the cud of bitterness with the pessimists. Yes, indeed, there is more pain in life than gladness. It is one long agony until the grave. Think how gay it makes me to remember that this horrible misery of mine, coupled with this unspeakable fear, may last fifty, one hundred, who knows how many more years. Close quote. This letter shows two things. First, you see how the entire consciousness of the poor man is so choked with the feeling of evil that the sense of there being any good in the world is lost for him altogether. His attention excludes it, cannot admit it. The sun has left his heaven. And secondly, you see how the querulous temper of his misery keeps his mind from taking a religious direction. Querulousness of mind tends, in fact, rather towards irreligion, and it has played, so far as I know, no part whatever in the construction of religious systems. Religious melancholy must be cast in a more melting mood. Tolstoy has left us, in his book called My Confession, a wonderful account of the attack of melancholy which led him to his own religious conclusions. The latter, in some respects, are peculiar, but the melancholy presents two characters which make it a typical document for our present purpose. First, it is a well-marked case of anhedonia, a passive loss of appetite for all life's values. And second, it shows how the altered and estranged aspect which the world assumed in consequence of this stimulated Tolstoy's intellect to a gnawing, carking questioning, and effort for philosophic relief. I mean to quote Tolstoy at some length, but before doing so, I will make a general remark on each of these two points. First, on our spiritual judgments and the sense of value in general. It is notorious that facts are compatible with opposite emotional comments, since the same fact will inspire entirely different feelings in different persons, and at different times in the same person. And there is no rationally deducible connection between any outer fact and the sentiments it may happen to provoke. These have their source in another sphere of existence altogether, in the animal and spiritual region of the subject's being. Conceive yourself, if possible, suddenly stripped of all the emotion with which your world now inspires you, and try to imagine it as it exists, purely by itself, without your favorable or unfavorable, hopeful or apprehensive comment. It will be almost impossible for you to realize such a condition of negativity and deadness. No one portion of the universe would then have importance beyond another and the whole collection of its things and series of its events would be without significance, character, expression, or perspective. Whatever of value, interest, or meaning our respective worlds may appear endued with 
are thus pure gifts of the spectator's mind. The passion of love is the most familiar and extreme example of this fact. If it comes, it comes. If it does not come, no process of reasoning can force it. Yet, it transforms the value of the creature loved as utterly as the sunrise transforms Mont Blanc from the corpse-like gray to a rosy enchantment, and it sets the whole world to a new tune for the lover and gives a new issue to his life. So with fear, with indignation, jealousy, ambition, worship. If they are there, life changes, and whether they shall be there or not, depends almost always upon non-logical, often on organic conditions. And as the excited interest which these passions put into the world is our gift to the world, just so are the passions themselves gifts, gifts to us from sources sometimes low and sometimes high, but almost always non-logical and beyond our control. How can the moribund old man reason back to himself the romance, the mystery, the imminence of great things with which our old earth tingled for him in the days when he was young and well? Gifts, either of the flesh or of the spirit, and the spirit bloweth where it listeth, and the world's materials lend their surface passively to all the gifts alike, as the stage setting receives indifferently whatever alternating colored lights may be shed upon it from the optical apparatus in the gallery. Meanwhile, the practically real world for each one of us, the effective world of the individual, is the compound world, the physical facts and emotional values in indistinguishable combination. Withdraw or pervert either factor of this complex resultant, and the kind of experience we call pathological ensues. In Tolstoy's case, the sense that life had any meaning whatever was for a time wholly withdrawn. The result was a transformation in the whole expression of reality. When we come to study the phenomenon of conversion or religious regeneration, we shall see that a not infrequent consequence of the change operated in the subject is a transfiguration of the face of nature in his eyes. A new heaven seems to shine upon a new earth. In melancholiacs, there is usually a similar change, only it is in the reverse direction. The world now looks remote, strange, sinister, uncanny. Its color is gone, its breath is cold. There is no speculation in the eyes it glares with. It is as if I lived in another century, says one asylum patient. I see everything through a cloud, says another. Things are not as they were, and I am changed. I see, says a third, quote, I touch, but the things do not come near me. A thick veil alters the hue and look of everything. Quote, Persons move like shadows, and sounds seem to come from a distant world. Quote, there is no longer any past for me. People appear so strange, it is as if I could not see any reality, as if I were in a theater, as if people were actors, and everything were scenery. 
I can no longer find myself. I walk, but why? Everything floats before my eyes, but leaves no impression. Quote, I weep false tears. I have unreal hands. The things I see are not real things. Close quote. Such are expressions that naturally rise to the lips of melancholy subjects describing their changed state. Now there are some subjects whom all this leaves a prey to the profoundest astonishment. The strangeness is wrong. The unreality cannot be. A mystery is concealed, and a metaphysical solution must exist. If the natural world is so double-faced and unhomelike, what world, what thing is real? An urgent wondering and questioning is set up, a pouring theoretic activity. And in the desperate effort to get into right relations with the matter, the sufferer is often led to what becomes for him a satisfying religious solution. At about the age of fifty, Tolstoy relates that he began to have moments of perplexity, of what he calls arrest, as if he knew not how to live or what to do. It is obvious that these were moments in which the excitement and interest which our functions naturally bring had ceased. Life had been enchanting. It was now flat sober. More than sober, dead. Things were meaningless, whose meaning had always been self-evident. The questions, why, and what next, began to beset him more and more frequently. At first, it seemed as if such questions must be answerable, and as if he could easily find the answers if he would take the time. But as they ever became more urgent, he perceived that it was like those first discomforts of a sick man, to which he pays but little attention till they run into one continuous suffering and then he realizes that what he took for a passing disorder means the most momentous thing in the world for him, means his death. These questions, why, wherefore, what for, found no response. I felt, says Tolstoy, quote, that something had broken within me on which my life had always rested, that I had nothing left to hold on to, and that morally my life had stopped. An invincible force impelled me to get rid of my existence in one way or another. It cannot be said exactly that I wished to kill myself, for the force which drew me away from life was fuller, more powerful, more general than any mere desire. It was a force like my old aspiration to live, only it impelled me in the opposite direction. It was an aspiration of my whole being to get out of life. Behold me then, a man happy and in good health, hiding the rope in order not to hang myself to the rafters of the room where every night I went to sleep alone. Behold me no longer going shooting, lest I should yield to the too easy temptation of putting an end to myself with my gun. I did not know what I wanted. I was afraid of life. I was driven to leave it, and in spite of that, I still hoped something from it. All this took place at a time when so far as all my outer circumstances went, I ought to have been completely happy. 
I had a good wife who loved me and whom I loved, good children, and a large property which was increasing with no pains taken on my part. I was more respected by my kinsfolk and acquaintance than I had ever been. I was loaded with praise by strangers, and without exaggeration I could believe my name already famous. Moreover, I was neither insane nor ill. On the contrary, I possessed a physical and mental strength which I have rarely met in persons of my age. I could mow as well as the peasants. I could work with my brain eight hours uninterruptedly and feel no bad effects. And yet, I could give no reasonable meaning to any actions of my life. And I was surprised that I had not understood this from the very beginning. My state of mind was as if some wicked and stupid jest was being played upon me by someone. One can live only so long as one is intoxicated, drunk with life. But when one grows sober, one cannot fail to see that it is all a stupid cheat. What is truest about it is that there is nothing even funny or silly in it. It is cruel and stupid, purely and simply. The oriental fable of the traveler surprised in the desert by a wild beast is very old. Seeking to save himself from the fierce animal, the traveler jumps into a well with no water in it. But at the bottom of this well, he sees a dragon waiting with open mouth to devour him. And the unhappy man, not daring to go out lest he should be the prey of the beast, not daring to jump to the bottom, lest he should be devoured by the dragon, clings to the branches of a wild bush which grows out of one of the cracks of the well. His hands weaken, and he feels that he must soon give way to certain fate. But still he clings, and sees two mice, one white, the other black, evenly moving round the bush to which he hangs, and gnawing off its roots. The traveler sees this, and knows that he must inevitably perish. But while thus hanging, he looks about him, and finds on the leaves of the bush some drops of honey. These he reaches with his tongue, and licks them off with rapture. Thus I hang upon the boughs of life, knowing that the inevitable dragon of death is waiting ready to tear me, and I cannot comprehend why I am thus made a martyr. I try to suck the honey which formerly consoled me, but the honey pleases me no longer, and day and night the white mouse and the black mouse gnaw the branch to which I cling. I can see but one thing, the inevitable dragon and the mice. I cannot turn my gaze away from them. This is no fable, but the literable, incontestable truth which everyone may understand. What will be the outcome of what I do today, of what I shall do tomorrow? What will be the outcome of all my life? Why should I live? Why should I do anything? Is there in life any purpose which the inevitable death which awaits me does not undo and destroy? These questions are the simplest in the world. From the stupid child to the wisest old man, they are in the soul of every human being. 
without an answer to them, it is impossible, as I experienced, for life to go on. But perhaps, I often said to myself, there may be something I have failed to notice or to comprehend. It is not possible that this condition of despair should be natural to mankind. And I sought for an explanation in all the branches of knowledge acquired by men. I questioned painfully and protractedly, and with no idle curiosity. I sought, not with indolence, but laboriously and obstinately for days and nights together. I sought like a man who is lost and seeks to save himself, and I found nothing. I became convinced, moreover, that all those who before me had sought for an answer in the sciences have also found nothing. And not only this, but that they have recognized that the very thing which was leading me to despair, the meaningless absurdity of life, is the only incontestable knowledge accessible to man. Close quote. To prove this point, Tolstoy quotes the Buddha, Solomon, and Schopenhauer, and he finds only four ways in which men of his own class and society are accustomed to meet the situation. Either mere animal blindness sucking the honey without seeing the dragon or the mice, and from such a way, he says, I can learn nothing after what I now know, or reflective epicureanism, snatching what it can while the day lasts, which is only a more deliberate sort of stupefaction than the first, or manly suicide, or seeing the mice and dragon, and yet weakly and plaintively clinging to the bush of life. Suicide was naturally the consistent course dictated by the logical intellect. Yet, says Tolstoy, quote, Whilst my intellect was working, something else in me was working too, and kept me from the deed, a consciousness of life, as I might call it, which was like a force that obliged my mind to fix itself in another direction and draw me out of my situation of despair. During the whole course of this year, when I almost unceasingly kept asking myself how to end the business, whether by the rope or by the bullet, during all that time, alongside of all those movements of my ideas and observations, my heart kept languishing with another pining emotion. I can call this by no other name than that of a thirst for God. This craving for God had nothing to do with the movement of my ideas. In fact, it was the direct contrary of that movement. But it came from my heart. It was like a feeling of dread that made me seem like an orphan and isolated in the midst of all these things that were so foreign. And this feeling of dread was mitigated by the hope of finding the assistance of someone. Close quote. Of the process, intellectual as well as emotional, which, starting from this idea of God, led to Tolstoy's recovery, I will say nothing in this lecture, reserving that for a later hour. The only thing that need interest us now is the phenomenon of his absolute disenchantment with ordinary life, and the fact that the whole range of habitual values may, to a man as powerful and full of faculty as he was, come to appear so ghastly a mockery. 
when disillusionment has gone as far as this there is seldom a restitutio ad integrum one has tasted the fruit of the tree and the happiness of eden never comes again the happiness that comes when any does come and often enough it fails to return in an acute form though its form is sometimes very acute is not the simple ignorance of ill but something vastly more complex including natural evil as one of its elements but finding natural evil no such stumbling block and terror because it now sees it swallowed up in supernatural good the process is one of redemption not of mere reversion to natural health and the sufferer when saved is saved by what seems to him a second birth a deeper kind of conscious being than he could enjoy before we find a somewhat different type of religious melancholy enshrined in literature in john bunyan's autobiography tolstoy's preoccupations were largely objective for the purpose and meaning of life in general was what so troubled him but poor bunyan's troubles were over the condition of his own personal self he was a typical case of psychopathic temperament sensitive of conscience to a diseased degree beset by doubts fears and incessant ideas and a victim of verbal automatisms both motor and sensory these were usually texts of scripture which sometimes damnatory and sometimes favorable would come in a half hallucinatory form as if they were voices and fasten on his mind and buffet it between them like a shuttlecock added to this were a fearful melancholy self-contempt and despair Quote, nay thought i now i grow worse and worse now i am farther from conversion than ever i was before if now i should have burned at the stake i could not believe that christ had love for me alas i could neither hear him nor see him nor feel him nor savor any of these things sometimes i would tell my condition to the people of god which when they heard they would pity me and would tell me of the promises but they had as good have told me that i must reach the sun with my finger as have bidden me receive or rely upon the promise yet all this while as to the act of sinning i never was more tender than now i durst not take a pin or stick though but so big as a straw for my conscience now was sore and would smart at every touch i could not tell how to speak my words for fear i should misplace them oh how gingerly did i then go in all i did or said i found myself as an miry bog that shook if i did but stir and was as there left both by god and christ and the spirit and all good things but my original and inward pollution that was my plague and my affliction by reason of that i was more loathsome in my own eyes than was a toad and i thought i was so in god's eyes too sin and corruption i said would as naturally bubble out of my heart as water would bubble out of a fountain i could have changed heart with anybody 
I thought none but the devil himself could equal me for inward wickedness and pollution of mind. Sure, thought I, I am forsaken of God, and thus I continued a long while, even for some years together. And now I was sorry that God had made me a man. The beasts, birds, fishes, etc., I blessed their condition, for they had not a sinful nature. They were not obnoxious to the wrath of God. They were not to go to hell-fire after death. I could therefore have rejoiced had my condition been as any of theirs. Now I blessed the condition of the dog and toad. Yea, gladly would I have been in the condition of the dog or horse, for I knew they had no soul to perish under the everlasting weight of hell or sin, as mine was like to do. Nay, and though I saw this, felt this, and was broken to pieces with it, yet that which added to my sorrow was that I could not find with all my soul that I did desire deliverance. My heart was at times exceedingly hard. If I would have given a thousand pounds for a tear, I could not shed one, no, nor sometimes scarce desire to shed one. I was both a burden and a terror to myself, nor did I ever so know, as now, what it was to be weary of my life, and yet afraid to die. How gladly I would have been anything but myself, anything but a man, and in any condition but my own. Close quote. Poor patient Bunyan, like Tolstoy, saw the light again, but we must also postpone that part of his story for another hour. In a later lecture, I will also give the end of the experience of Henry Alleny, a devoted evangelist who worked in Nova Scotia a hundred years ago, and who thus vividly describes the high-water mark of the religious melancholy which formed its beginning. The type was not unlike Bunyan's. Quote, Everything I saw seemed to be a burden to me. The earth seemed accursed for my sake. All trees, plants, rocks, hills, and vales seemed to be dressed in mourning and groaning under the weight of the curse, and everything around me seemed to be conspiring my ruin. My sins seemed to be laid open, so that I thought that everyone I saw knew them, and sometimes I was almost ready to acknowledge many things which I thought they knew. Yea, sometimes it seemed to me as if everyone was pointing me out as the most guilty wretch upon earth. I had now so great a sense of the vanity and emptiness of all things here below, that I knew the whole world could not possibly make me happy, no, nor the whole system of creation. When I waked in the morning, the first thought would be, O oh, my wretched soul, what shall I do? Where shall I go? And when I laid down, would say, I shall be perhaps in hell before morning. I would many times look on the beasts with envy, wishing with all my heart I was in their place, that I might have no soul to lose. And when I have seen birds flying over my head, have often thought within myself, Oh, that I could fly away from my danger and distress, 
Oh, how happy should I be if I were in their place. Close quote. Envy of the placid beasts seems to be a very widespread affection in this type of sadness. The worst kind of melancholy is that which takes the form of panic fear. Here is an excellent example for permission to print which I have to thank the sufferer. The original is in French, and though the subject was evidently in a bad nervous condition at the time of which he writes, his case has otherwise the merit of extreme simplicity. I translate freely. Quote, Whilst in this state of philosophic pessimism and general depression of spirits about my prospects, I went one evening into a dressing-room in the twilight to procure some article that was there, when suddenly there fell upon me without any warning, just as if it came out of the darkness, a horrible fear of my own existence. Simultaneously, there arose in my mind the image of an epileptic patient whom I had seen in the asylum, a black-haired youth with greenish skin, entirely idiotic, who used to sit all day on one of the benches, or rather shelves against the wall, with his knees drawn up against his chin, and the coarse gray undershirt, which was his only garment, drawn over them, enclosing his entire figure. He sat there like a sort of sculptured Egyptian cat or Peruvian mummy, moving nothing but his black eyes, and looking absolutely non-human. This image and my fear entered into a species of combination with each other. That shape am I, I felt, potentially. Nothing that I possess can defend me against that fate, if the hour for it should strike for me as it struck for him. There was such a horror of him, and such a perception of my own merely momentary discrepancy from him, that it was as if something hitherto solid within my breast gave way entirely, and I became a mass of quivering fear. After this, the universe was changed for me altogether. I awoke morning after morning with a horrible dread at the pit of my stomach, and with a sense of the insecurity of life that I never knew before, and that I have never felt since. Begin footnote. Compare Bunyan. Quote, there was I struck into a very great trembling, insomuch that at some times I could, for days together, feel my very body, as well as my mind, to shake and totter under the sense of the dreadful judgment of God, that should fall on those that have sinned that most fearful and unpardonable sin. I felt also such clogging and heat in my stomach, by reason of this my terror that I was, especially at some times, as if my breastbone would have split asunder. Thus did I wind and twine and shrink under the burden that was upon me, which burden also did so oppress me that I could neither stand nor go nor lie, either at rest or quiet. End quote. Close footnote. It was like a revelation, and although the immediate feelings passed away, the experience has made me sympathetic with the morbid feelings of others ever since. 
It gradually faded, but for months I was unable to go out into the dark alone. In general, I dreaded to be left alone. I remember wondering how other people could live, how I myself had ever lived, so unconscious of that pit of insecurity beneath the surface of life. My mother, in particular, a very cheerful person, seemed to me a perfect paradox in her unconsciousness of danger, which you may well believe I was very careful not to disturb by revelations of my own state of mind. I have always thought that this experience of melancholia of mine had a religious bearing. Close quote. On asking this correspondent to explain more fully what he meant by these last words, the answer he wrote was this. Quote, I mean that the fear was so invasive and powerful that if I had not clung to scripture texts like The Eternal God is my refuge, etc., Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, etc., I am the resurrection and the life, etc., I think I should have grown really insane. Close quote. There is no need of more examples. The cases we have looked at are enough. One of them gives us the vanity of mortal things, another the sense of sin, and the remaining one describes the fear of the universe. And in one or other of these three ways, it always is that man's original optimism and self-satisfaction get leveled with the dust. In none of these cases was there any intellectual insanity or delusion about matters of fact but were we disposed to open the chapter of really insane melancholia with its hallucinations and delusions, it would be a worse story still. Desperation, absolute and complete, the whole universe coagulating about the sufferer into a material of overwhelming horror, surrounding him without opening or end. Not the conception or intellectual perception of evil, but the grisly, blood-freezing, heart-palsying sensation of it close upon one, and no other conception or sensation able to live for a moment in its presence. How irreverently remote seem all our usual refined optimisms and intellectual and moral consolations in presence of a need of help like this. Here is the real core of the religious problem. Help! Help! No prophet can claim to bring a final message unless he says things that will have a sound of reality in the ears of victims such as these. But the deliverance must come in as strong a form as the complaint, if it is to take effect, and that seems a reason why the coarser religions, revivalistic, orgiastic, with blood and miracles and supernatural operations, may possibly never be displaced. Some constitutions need them too much. Arrived at this point, we can see how great an antagonism may naturally arise between the healthy-minded way of viewing life and the way that takes all this experience of evil as something essential. To this latter way, the morbid-minded way, as we might call it, healthy-mindedness, pure and simple, seems unspeakably blind and shallow. To the healthy-minded way, on the other hand, the way of the sick soul seems unmanly and diseased. With their grubbing in rat-holes instead of living in the light, 
with their manufacture of fears and preoccupation with every unwholesome kind of misery there is something almost obscene about these children of wrath and cravers of a second birth if religious intolerance and hanging and burning could again become the order of the day there is little doubt that however it may have been in the past the healthy-minded would at present show themselves the less indulgent party of the two in our own attitude not yet abandoned of impartial onlookers what are we to say of this quarrel it seems to me that we are bound to say that morbid-mindedness ranges over the wider scale of experience and that its survey is the one that overlaps the method of averting one's attention from evil and living simply in the light of good is splendid as long as it will work it will work with many persons it will work far more generally than most of us are ready to suppose and within the sphere of its successful operation there is nothing to be said against it as a religious solution but it breaks down impotently as soon as melancholy comes and even though one be quite free from melancholy oneself there is no doubt that healthy-mindedness is inadequate as a philosophical doctrine because the evil facts which it refuses positively to account for are a genuine portion of reality and they may after all be the best key to life's significance and possibly the only openers of our eyes to the deepest levels of truth the normal process of life contains moments as bad as any of those which insane melancholy is filled with moments in which radical evil gets its innings and takes its solid turn the lunatic's visions of horror are all drawn from the material of daily fact our civilization is founded on the shambles and every individual existence goes out in a lonely spasm of helpless agony if you protest my friend wait till you arrive there yourself to believe in the carnivorous reptiles of geologic times is hard for our imagination they seem too much like mere museum specimens yet there is no tooth in any one of those museum skulls that did not daily through long years of the foretime hold fast to the body struggling in despair of some fated living victim forms of horror just as dreadful to their victims if on a smaller spatial scale fill the world about us to-day here on our very hearths and in our gardens the infernal cat plays with the panting mouse or holds the hot bird fluttering in her jaws crocodiles and rattlesnakes and pythons are at this moment vessels of life as real as we are their loathsome existence fills every minute of every day that drags its length along and whenever they or other wild beasts clutch their living prey the deadly horror which an agitated melancholiac feels is the literally right reaction on the situation begin footnote example quote, it was about eleven o'clock at night but i strolled on still with the people suddenly on the left side of our road a crackling was heard among the bushes all of us were alarmed and in an instant a tiger rushing out of the jungle pounced upon one of the party that was foremost 
and carried him off in the twinkling of an eye. The rush of the animal, and the crush of the poor victim's bones in his mouth, and his last cry of distress, Ho hi! involuntarily re-echoed by all of us, was over in three seconds. And then I know not what happened till I returned to my senses, when I found myself and companions lying down on the ground as if prepared to be devoured by our enemy, the sovereign of the forest. I find my pen incapable of describing the terror of that dreadful moment. Our limbs stiffened, our power of speech ceased, and our hearts beat violently, and only a whisper of the same, Ho hi! was heard from us. In this state, we crept on all fours for some distance back, and then ran for our life with the speed of an Arab horse for about half an hour, and fortunately happened to come to a small village. After this, every one of us was attacked with fever, attended with shivering, in which deplorable state we remained till morning. Close quote. End footnote. It may indeed be that no religious reconciliation with the absolute totality of things is possible. Some evils, indeed, are ministerial to higher forms of good, but it may be that there are forms of evil so extreme as to enter into no good system whatsoever, and that, in respect of such evil, dumb submission or neglect to notice is the only practical resource. This question must confront us on a later day. But provisionally, and as a mere matter of program and method, since the evil facts are as genuine parts of nature as the good ones, the philosophic presumption should be that they have some rational significance, and that systematic healthy-mindedness, failing as it does to accord to sorrow, pain, and death any positive and active attention whatever, is formally less complete with systems that try at least to include these elements in their scope. The completest religions would therefore seem to be those in which the pessimistic elements are best developed. Buddhism, of course, and Christianity are the best known to us of these. They are essentially religions of deliverance. The man must die to an unreal life before he can be born into the real life. In my next lecture, I will try to discuss some of the psychological conditions of this second birth. Fortunately, from now onward, we shall have to deal with more cheerful subjects than those which we have recently been dwelling on. End of Lecture 7